0: I'm Alex Shaw.
1: I'm Sharon Shaw. And,
0: and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies.
2: <laughs> Pitch black. They say most of your brain shuts down and cry sleep. All but the animal side. Guess that's why I'm still awake.
0: If the man is gone, he's
2: gone. Why should he bother us? Maybe they take what you got. Maybe to work your nerves. Is he really that dangerous? Only around humans. Zeke! All you people are so scared of me.
1: But it ain't me you gotta worry about now. Whatever it is, it got Zeke and it nearly got me! Get it up!
2: They seem to stick to darkness. So if we stick to daylight, we should be all right. A total eclipse.
0: We're gonna lose everybody out here. dark are you this is one we've been promising we would do for years it's actually quite a special movie for us because it was one of the first that we saw in the cinema together and it was rich enough sci-fi for us to leave the theater deconstructing and analyzing it enthusiastically all the way back in the spring of 2000 And I realized from checking dates yesterday that I've been misremembering things.
1: Okay.
0: Uh, This film was released early 2000 in America. And especially in those days, we tended to get things a lot later in England, sometimes weeks, sometimes months. Uh, The release date in the UK was April. We weren't together until the beginning of August. Together, together. We were living together, maybe, kind of.
1: We moved in together... We met in February 2000.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We moved in together in June 2000. Yeah. And we... Um, we just
0: hung out between meeting and moving yeah. in.
1: Uh, and we got together as a couple at the very tail end of July.
0: Yeah. August. But I've like got it in my head that you and I were a couple when we were coming out of Pitch Black and talking about it like that. And it's, it's, maybe we weren't at that point. Maybe, in fact... This might have been a movie that strengthened the bond between us and brought us closer together. It's a really solid movie, and it gave us the fertile ground to start going, and this meant this, and this meant that, and this was really interesting. And We used interesting back then because it was okay. Mm. It was all made of wood. And... <laughs> And I think, especially from watching the making of stuff, that what we've done over the years is confer too much credit to the creators with the subtleties of this movie. Many of them will have happened by happy accident. Many of them will have been done because it was cool. It was specifically mentioned by the effects guy uh, 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 that um, he put swirls of boiling lava in one bit because it looked cool.
1: Indeed. I think... There's quite a bit of it that we personally read a lot into in part because the creators are nicking things from other stuff which is deeper and has been created with more intentionality rather like the work of one Paul W.S. Anderson.
0: See, I compared it to Event Horizon yesterday. I'd, I'd say this compares more favourably than Event Horizon when it comes to derivation. Oh,
1: hells yeah, and there's a good reason
0: It's better put together.
1: It's because it's minimalist. Uh-huh. The, the elements that are taken from other stuff, they're kind of pared down. Whereas Anderson seems to have taken various things that he has enjoyed, and then layered them up to make something that looks rather messy this is more of a stripped down version of those things so you'll get little hints and echoes of the thing that they are derived from rather than uh, well I can see what's in here but did you have to scribble brown over everything Paul?
0: Peter Chiang was the uh, effects guy and honestly the effects are probably one of the parts of this movie that have suffered the most but when you consider the time and the budget and where we were technologically it still holds up pretty well against a lot of the other similar films of that era like compare this to say the horrendous CG in Lost in Space from 1998
1: Mm, yeah Absolutely, and, and the, the creators of the effects, whether they knew that this was what they were doing or not, have utilized the lack of light and the, the fact that a lot of it takes place underground and it's actually conveyed mm. by sound or by just flashes of seeing something and, and never really getting a full-on look at it, mm. really allows them to do much more with
0: what you can't see. They're treating Oh my God, this is it! They're treating the CG like people who use practical have to treat practical. They know that if they've got this Greebly model, it's gonna look crap if you put it in broad daylight in a big open space. If we
1: film it from this angle, everyone's gonna see the zipper.
0: Yeah, but if we film it in the dark, in the shadows, for just a flash, and it's used at an impactful moment then you'd be like, oh shit, that thing's huge and terrifying and disgusting.
1: Absolutely, there's another very good horror that does the same thing, same similar era, same theme of everything being underground. Brotherhood of the Wolf. Not what I was going to say. But
0: yes. (laughs) It began life as a fairly straightforward script doing the rounds in Hollywood with a simple premise. According to the writers of the first draft, Ken and Jim Wheat, the idea of pitch black was suggested by David Madden during his tenure at Interscope Communications. I heard Interscope Communications mentioned several times, and I think Vin Diesel was there writing a movie about being a bouncer, which never got made. But
1: Interscope that... Communications.
0: Interscope like Communications. People
1: who make camera parts.
0: I don't know, it like it's, a, it's a late '90s startup. So here's the premise. Back then, travelers visit a planet where multiple suns. It's got three suns, and I was just like, my three suns, my. Travelers visit a planet where multiple suns mean perpetual daylight, but when an eclipse brings darkness, so that's a hell of an eclipse, ghosts emerge. The ghost part only survived the first draft. Notably, John Carpenter's Ghosts of Mars was released a year and a half after this in the summer of 2001. I don't know if they went, scrap the idea of ghosts, Carpenter's doing something called Ghosts of Mars, or they scrapped the idea of ghosts, someone else was in the room when they, when they did that, and then said to John, hey, Ghosts on Mars, you want to do a movie about that? They just scrapped the idea, they changed it to Greebleys instead, and uh, John was like, yeah, absolutely. Because that's how John Carpenter talks. After this revision, the ghosts were changed to nocturnal monsters, and the crew have to deal with them and get back off world. Very simple. Director David Tui came along and rewrote the script, adding in the crucial ingredient of a convict named Riddick, who begins the film as an escaped threat, but might be the one that saves the few remaining survivors. Universal picked an apparently disagreeable big star whom Tui did not get on with and I've been wildly speculating on what 90s star was just throwing his ass around and was like, I'm going to be Riddick and it's going to be just like this. My money's on Tobey Maguire. The irony
1: is, making it now, it'd be Vin Diesel.
0: Oh my god. <laughs> Uh, either way, he, Tui he did not get on with him. And so uh, the folks at Universal gave him a Hollywood ultimatum. Listen, buddy, you got two choices. You can either make it with this guy or it don't get made at all. And David thought about this and decided, yeah, I'm going to go with two. And they were like, whoa, 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 whoa. We just gave you a Hollywood ultimatum. I don't know why they're from the Bronx. <laughs> You know, you understand that uh, if, if you pick option two, we're going to go with someone else and you don't get to make this film, which you wrote, and uh, David went, eh. yeah, no, I'd still prefer to do that than to do it with a, a shrieking prima donna. And you know, I, I gotta admire him for his convictions. That what he lacks in the ability to turn this story into a giant space opera later on, he has in the integrity of deciding to go with his gut on this doesn't feel right. And I applaud that sentiment.
1: Maybe after this, he decided, I'm going to be that Hollywood prima donna that people make ultimatums. No, about.
0: I've never heard people complain about David Toohey being an asshole. So. Then uh, he went home, and then Hollywood phoned him the moment he got there. Hollywood, uh, and they were like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! Hold your horses there, till we <laughs> we got the third option for you." And he was like, "Okay, what's the third option?" He was like, "Well, how about you makes the movie, and you makes it with someone else, and and you tell us who that someone else is, because we have no fucking clue." <laughs> I feel like, like, t- tell us, folks, if you want me to keep doing these Hollywood guys from the Bronx.
1: <laughs> they feel like a really dodgy side office of Universal. Who <laughs> Like, we're, we're going to give you this one uh, star on contract. You've got to get him in something by the end of this year, otherwise yeah. you're fired.
0: Listen, Toby Maguire holds a lot of water in this town. <laughs> He's throwing his ass around. <clears throat> so this was after Saving Private Ryan, but it was just before The Iron Giant was released in the summer of 99. Long after the promotional work for the Street Sharks action figure line. Really? Be- yep. Yeah. <laughs> but before he... St- Let's just play that, shall we?
2: What, what are we looking at here? We're looking at Boomer. This is Boomer. He's got the biggest mouth of them all. He's the whale shark. Say hello to that round mound of pound and his power slam. Very deadly. He loves to tenderize the competition before he eats him. Then we've got Sledge the Hammerhead. Sledge the Hammerhead loves to floor the competition with the flying headbutt. You got me? He's the leader of the street sharks. He's a great warrior. He's got the feel real shark skin and he's, his special power is the right hand roundhouse punch. He sends a competition to a watery grave. Boom! Tell you, I want to show you something up close and personal. I've got something here with such fantastic detail it's gonna blow you away. Hand shark! I'm going to, uh, Rocky Balboa action. It's clearly a <laughs>
0: How could you not find Vin Diesel? Young, fun Vin Diesel charming, he's lovely. But this was also before he starred for the first time as Dominic Toretto and the less popular Triple X. And in an instance of perfect timing, this tiny, cheap $20 million B-movie scored a young Vin Diesel at his exact prime. He moves like a panther, he speaks like molten stone, and he looks genuinely frightening. He stands as a true neutral killer, masquerading as neutral evil, yet by the end he manages to find some humanity, frailty, introspection, and even humility. It's more of an arc than he's managed since. I'm racking my brains for something of the equivalent in terms of, oh, okay.
1: Because even if you just look at the first Fast and the Furious movie, he doesn't really change. It's just that Brian finds out more about him.
0: Because, I mean, ultimately, the, the way I described him there, like, he, he's what teenagers would describe as, wow, he's so cool and badass. And by the mo- end of the movie, you're like, you know, he's less cool and badass than he said he was, and that's okay. And one of the big problems with all the follow-ups to this was going, no, 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 he is that cool and badass.
1: Yeah. Uh, he makes a conscious choice at the end of the movie to lay aside the Riddick persona. And then the movies went, no, 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 no. Bring that back. Bring that back.
0: Uh, We will save all talk of those sequels and the transmedia spin-offs for their own shows, but as it stands, this first film still deserves your attention. It has dated the most in terms of the late 90s budget computer graphics use, as I said, though there are plenty of subtly applied instances of this where you wouldn't actually notice unless told it. And this is complemented with an earthy spotlighting of practical effects front and centre. It also helps that there are a handful of characters in this, rather than loads, with excellent performances and their own demons to battle out. It's, it's, it's relatively sparse, but they've got stuff going on. You remember who people are, in the way that in the original Alien, you remember who people are. You remember their names.
2: Transporting me with civilians... Sounded like 40, 40 plus. Heard an Arab voice, some hoodoo holy man, probably on his way to New Mecca. But what route? What route? Smelled a woman, sweat, boots, tool belt, leather, prospector type, free settlers, and they only take the back roads. And here's my real problem. Mr. Johns, the blue-eyed devil, planning on taking me back to Slam. Only this time he picked a ghost lane. A long time between stops. A long time for something to go wrong.
0: David Tui is a very technical and shot-focused director and probably missed his calling as a cinematographer but here he gets the best out of his cast and cultivates a lean script without dithering. Now, the Alien movies have been paid homage, parodied, inspired, and sometimes have just been plain nicked by other creators. But the world of Pitch Black that we are presented with manages to extract some of the best elements and blend them into a cohesive reality that neither leaves vital questions unanswered, nor begs to be further explored. That's why it works so well on its own. It's like, it takes place in this universe. Oh, what about that? No, it doesn't matter. Once they get off world, it doesn't matter. Just focus on this. It's a familiar canvas to paint a story that eschews heroism for survival in an incredibly hostile place. See, this has the jet-lagged, sleep-deprived feel, the long-haul cargo flight of the crew of the Nostromo in Ridley Scott's Alien, as well as having that small identifiable cast. It has the female energy and the teeming nest of nightmarish beasties who mostly come at night, mostly, lurking in the shadows of James Cameron's Aliens. And I think most of all, it has the industrial, junkyard, backwater isolation, shaved heads and surly demeanours of the prison colony of David Fincher's Alien 3. And it has almost none of Alien Resurrection, save all that for The Chronicles of Riddick. Oh, yes. Yes. Okay, no, technically it, it, it does take one thing from Alien Resurrection. There is a star in the middle of all of these confused, scared people who are probably going to die. And the star is dangerous and unpredictable and we don't know what they're going to do. So, yeah, it does take that. Let's talk about the characters each in turn, because they're strong enough that we can actually talk about this movie through the lens of the characters. At the beginning, we meet Carolyn Fry, played by Australian actress Radha Mitchell. What she does at the outset is what she's dealing with for the rest of the film. She is awoken by an unexpected meteor shower tearing through their spaceship. She ejects from her pod and rushes to the cockpit to find that they've entered the orbit of a desert planet and she has to level them out or the crash will kill them all.
1: Correct. My guess is that since we later see that one of the neighboring planets has uh, a ring of rocks around it that they drifted off course and passed through that.
0: Yeah. Frankly, they're incredibly lucky. It was gravel-sized asteroid chunks that flew through the ship. Just a large one would have wrecked them immediately.
1: Absolutely. And they probably would have burned up if it had a thicker atmosphere. So the fact that they can't breathe very well to begin with Mm. is potentially what saved them in the first place. Oh,
0: yikes. Unfortunately, due to their trajectory, she has to make the decision to dump the cargo in order to save the front part of the ship. The cargo is the settlers and it's only an onboard malfunction in separation that prevents them from being left in the maelstrom she pulls that handle she makes that decision that and Fry's... is he a captain a superior no, officer no he's
1: he's another at least roughly at her rank i think right. the captain dies first right. so these two are kind of the backup uh, but he does something to jam the door so that she can't pull that handle. It doesn't happen by accident.
0: Ah, it's not even a... Right, okay.
1: It's not a malfunction. He deliberately wedges it so that she can't jettison that
0: section. So that comes into her character as well because everyone keeps thanking her at the beginning for saving their lives and she's like, I don't save your life. The guy who died with a pipe through his chest screaming Mm -hmm. like a pig in a war, he's the one who actually saved your lives by stopping me from killing you.
1: Absolutely, but... Her first step back to humanity from that moment of weakness, which she regrets for the rest of the film. Oh, yeah. Uh, She's
0: traumatised for that whole thing. Her
1: first step comes almost immediately afterwards because when Owens is dying, with this uh, shaft stuck through him, she stays with him. Mm. She sits with him through his pain while he dies. She doesn't cut and leave, so that immediately makes it apparent. It is not in her character to be a quitter... That was a moment of terror and weakness. And there's a lot of that in the people in this film where they will do impulsive, bad things Mm. and then regret them and change their behaviour, which is very, very human.
0: For a long time, I've assumed that the reason she stayed with him was like, no, 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 I'll stay with him, is so that she didn't walk off and then Shazza was like, well, I'll stay with him then. And then he was like, you know, she was trying to kill all of you. Right, Okay, now I've got that bit of information.
1: It's possible, but I don't think she's that manipulative. Really? I don't think that she's... If you look at her in that moment, she's regretful and terrified. I don't think she's thinking that clearly and and, um, Mm. Machiavellian-like.
0: She never gets a monologue. She never gets to... Does she, like, talk to anyone about it at all?
1: She briefly talks to... Well, the first person she confesses to is Johns. Yeah. Uh, But Riddick overhears it. Right. She never tells anybody else. And frankly, by the time she's in a position where she could, they're dead. (laughs) Yeah. Um,
0: And she is... But this makes her want to get everyone off because she's done something so terrible that to square this away, she can either try to save them or curl up and die.
1: Absolutely. She's Initially, she is not the person who is supposed to take responsibility. And her moving towards taking that responsibility voluntarily even to the point where she does it when she doesn't need to that's her arc
0: Mm. it's a little confusing in terms of who you're actually seeing this film through the eyes of though because you're supposed to really be seeing it through Carolyn's eyes but she starts off doing something so terrible that we as an audience are asked to disapprove of her even if she does want to make amends for it but the first person who speaks is Riddick
1: and a lot of the moments that we see where we're watching people from third party, yeah. we're kind of watching through Riddick's eyes. Occasionally, we're watching through the creature's eyes.
0: Yeah. But it's strange. It's never We're never really let in on Riddick. He, he never tell, shows us, the audience, his vulnerable side until the very, very end.
1: Yeah. We're never really let in on anybody. They do have conversations where it almost feels like they're saying whatever's in their head. But because the script is so sparse, it doesn't feel like... You don't get mountains of exposition. It's just that sometimes people will say things out loud that in real life you probably wouldn't say out loud and it just gives away a little bit of of who they are and how they're feeling Mm. but there's also the fact that when they sometimes say things to each other that it feels like that's exposition to give us some insight deliberate insight into that character and otherwise might feel clunky it's delivered in the context of this person is saying this because they're angry, or they're saying it because they're scared. There's an impulse behind it that's pushing that thing out. Mm. Um, A a good example of this is when Carolyn is challenging Johns over his drug use, and he basically snaps and shows her why, because he's got this injury in his Mm. back that is obviously causing him a great deal of constant pain.
2: Mm.
1: And what the hell are
2: these? The Crobial
1: Warpix from Northern India. Very rare. And this? Uh, that's a, a hunting blowdown
0: pipe from northern Papua New Guinea. And well, that's very, very rare since the tribe is now extinct. Of course, I couldn't
2: hunt shit with these things, be my guess. Well, look, no, what's the point anyway? I mean, if the man is gone, he's gone. Why should he bother us? Maybe to take what you got. Maybe to work your nerves. Or well, maybe he'd just come back and skullfuck you in your sleep. Sounds like a charmer.
0: Shaza played by uh, Claudia Black is described at the beginning by Riddick that he can smell her. Like please don't smell me Riddick. <laughs> but he he talks uh, from a very sensory perception. Mm. He's that thing he's about he moves like himself, a panther. Yeah,
1: he's already described himself as an animal.
0: Yeah, he's seeing himself as something not quite human, so he's he's effectively a predator. Mm. So Shazza is described as as being Leather, oil, tool belt, boots, prospector type So she represents the people who are Coming out to find a new life in God knows where mm. And they're really out on the raggedy edge here So it's it's going to be a hard, scrabble life And the fact that she And uh, she's, she's with a bunch of other guys Including Zeke Who is only in this briefly And gets horribly killed They're from mm. Australia Does kind of I mean, they filmed a lot of this in Australia. Radha Mitchell's Australian, but she plays it well as American, to the point where you're like, is she, is
1: she Australian? Mm, oh, yeah. I genuinely didn't think she was. Um, but I didn't even remember her having been in Neighbours, even though I was watching it at that time.
0: Uh, that's the very long-running Australian soap opera Neighbours, not the Zac Efron frat house movie Neighbours. Which in the UK, because the Australian soap opera is such a keystone of our culture, the Zac Efron movie was renamed Bad Neighbours. Neighbors, everybody needs good neighbors. With a little understanding, you can find the perfect
2: place. come back and skullfuck you in your sleep.
0: It having that Australian flavor actually gives it that journeying out into a horrendous, inhospitable place of, effectively, and and it also kind of ties in with the whole prison colony aspect of it. Absolutely,
1: well where they land, there's the, the planet that they end up on, there are little settlements, or at least one settlement. The people who were there, were there for an extended period of time, we we never quite find out how long, although we can presume it was less than 22 years. And it's entirely possible that the planet that the settlers on board the ship were destined for wasn't wildly different to this. Maybe a bit more oxygen, a bit more water. And a
0: bit fewer (laughs) Greebleys. But um, Claudia Black has been continuously misused by everything she's in. Uh, The uh, only two exceptions are the Uncharted games where she plays Chloe extremely well in a memorable way and I I love the fact that she keeps coming back to various games and Farscape which is an Australian TV show that began in 1999 through to 2003.
1: Mm. I think this overlapped very slightly with her Farscape performance, either she was just auditioning for Farscape Mm -hmm. or she'd just been given the part because David Tui wanted her to have dreadlocks in this Mm -hmm. and she... Resisted because it would impact on how she was able to be made up for the uh, the Farscape role. Basically, if they were going to put dreadlocks in her hair, then afterwards she was going to have to shave her head, right. and she didn't want to do that.
0: Right. What did you say Claudia Black does now in, in 2020s? In
1: recent years, I don't know whether she's gone into this professionally or whether she's gone back to acting, but she had a, a period where she wasn't doing much in the way of, of acting roles, and she trained as a... Uh, somatic trauma therapist. Uh, What does
0: that entail?
1: Over the years she's talked about being diagnosed with complex PTSD herself and she went undiagnosed for ADHD for a long long time and I I don't know where any of that trauma came from. She's probably talked about it somewhere but that's not something that I've read about. However it motivated her to want to train in something that would help people who had been through similar stuff. (laughs) And somatic trauma therapy is, it it involves a lot of physical body work, it can involve yoga, it can involve breathing exercises, it can involve animal therapy, being with horses or being with dogs or or something along those lines. There's a lot of different elements to it but what it comes down to is that trauma can leave people feeling like they are not in control of their own body and that they are very detached from their own physical sensations and somatic therapy helps to reintegrate that so that your body feels like your own again
0: That's, uh, that is a noble profession to get into. Uh, it feels like uh, if the acting world was not going to make the best of Claudia Black, then she's doing something good in that regard, even if she only do- did that for a short while. Mm.
1: There's also a lovely story that she told on Twitter about the first time she met James McAvoy, mm-hmm. and gave him a piece of advice that apparently has stuck with him ever since.
0: What was the advice? It
1: was to do with doing sci-fi performances that Because when the writing can sometimes be a little bit crap...
0: Well, the writing can sometimes be a little bit crap, so
1: you've got to bring something more. You have to really lean into believing it so that the audience will believe it. Yeah. And he carried that on and was able to bring that to Mm. playing Charles Xavier, so thank you, Claudia.
0: Or Split. (laughs) Or The Perfect Son of the Perfect Boy. That
1: was the role she was talking to him about. Of (laughs) course.
0: Right. Then there's Paris, who's... I mean, uh, Shazza has very little going on besides being a prospector. She's killed way too early. She ends up just this screaming torso. And...
1: She is killed too horribly as well. Yeah, it's, It horrible. is unfair the way she dies. Eh.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, Paris is a nervy and soft man, used to the finer things in life, and he's not cut out for this whatsoever. It's astonishing he lives as long as he does. I think he does—he lives this long because he's the kind of person that irritates you for being in monster movies. Because it's like, how are you here?
1: There is that. He's preposterous. He's, he is kept around. Okay. From a meta perspective, he is kept around for comedy value. Yes. From a narrative perspective, he is kept around because he stands behind everybody else because he's a fucking coward.
0: Yeah, and his uh, perspective on things is, look, if the man's gone, he's gone. Why, do, why would he have to go out there and, and look for him? Let's just go. It's It's very much a, a stick your head in the sand until you have to run away. And, and frankly, he just wants to get the hell away from here, which is a practical consideration.
1: It is. But the, the contribution that he makes to their not rescue effort, but their survival effort mm. is the antique weapons and booze collection mm. that he was shipping mm. in this uh, the vessel that was was travelling at the beginning. My guess is he came this route because it was a cheaper way to bring all of this stuff and also he might be able to bypass paying customs on it when he yeah. arrived wherever he was going.
0: He seemed a little shiftier and dodgier than his accent would suggest.
1: Absolutely, but he also seems a little bit wealthier to really be on mm. this kind of of... Trip.
0: He also. I think he has the most visually fun, interesting uh, uh, death of the whole thing. (laughs) Interesting. Interesting. (laughs) Damn. I think he has the most visually arresting. Okay. There you go. Uh, Death in the whole thing. It's the he panics and and scrabbles out into the middle of nowhere in complete pitch black. Dab and leave. Uh, and then he start, starts to hear greeblies around him in the darkness while he lights a lighter up drinks some of his signature liquor and then mutters to himself that he was supposed to die in France and then blows a plume of alcoholic fire illuminating all the beasties around him which and then the light dies out and he gets eaten and it's 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 just a great bit of brief cinema. Yeah,
1: there. you just get... There's a moment of breath where you realise that they're all going to descend on him like the yeah. Theatre des Vampires in uh, Interview with a Vampire.
0: Yeah, But, like, he could just be squealing and screaming and making a huge fuss, but mm. there's this kind of, oh, for fuck's sake, about yeah. it.
1: But what I was going to say about the, the, the stuff that he brings, it is all primitive compared uh, like where Blow they are guns. exactly where they are in in the sense that where they are is a very non-technological environment mm. it is a desert planet with scary evolved monsters on it that's that's all it is there's a tiny little settlement that was trying to scrabble a life out of it and failed and the the technology that they have to cannibalize from the ship is minimal because most of it's busted and broken and Mm. and smashed up. Scrap,
0: just like in uh, Fury Exactly. In uh, Alien 3.
1: What he provides initially seems like, well that would be very appropriate to this environment but actually it proves to be not massively useful. Mm. They're all drinking the booze and then Carolyn points out they probably shouldn't be because it'll dehydrate them even further because at this point they haven't got any water Also if they're all drunk and
0: staggering around the place, they're not going to get off the the planet faster
1: exactly but it just it reminded me of sort of the medieval thing of you drink beer all day every day because the water will probably kill you
0: yeah Uh, but the the environment that they've been thrown into is very much uh, they were in the space but beyond space age the space faring age Mm. and they've been hurtled back to a primordial predator versus prey environment indeed and they don't even have jungle to hide in they've got nothing Mm
1: but the the primordial skill to be able to take that environment on is not something that you can apply just by handing a person a spear the, it has to come from within
0: they are the apes at the beginning of 2001 a space odyssey and rather than being one jaguar there's a thousand yes Jack is a boy and originally was written just as a boy, but as it transpires is actually a girl in disguise, which uh, Tweed says is Shakespearean. I'm like, let's not go nuts, shall we? <laughs> uh, but I mean, it's, it's, it's neat because there's a great reveal in the third act that because Jack concealed her femininity and is in fact going through her monthly cycle she is drawing more predatory attention to them and it specifically is a revealing piece of character for Johns who treats her barbarically
1: mm, as a result and I think the the way that's played out it could that scene could have been really ham-fisted and clumsy I actually think it's done quite well yeah and the the point that's made
0: Jack isn't doing this for a uh, identity he's doing this to be left alone absolutely oh shit she is doing this to be left alone uh, male is not her identity or her gender presentation uh, aside from for practical reasons
1: yeah she points out that she's I mean they never really address the fact that she's travelling without her parents either way even if she was really a boy she's still very young yeah and
0: also, even if she's really a boy, she's trying to avoid getting uh, attacked well, and assaulted what, that, in the space lanes. <laughs> it's not going to hold everyone back.
1: Well, uh, but she says that she's she disguised herself as a boy because she thought people would leave her alone. Mm. And it's it's a reasonable assumption to make, yeah. but part of the, the point of... And, and it shouldn't character. change
0: anything, but the monthly thing does actually put a, a locus of... Risk of keeping Jack around.
1: Indeed, but the point that this is kind of made is that it didn't occur to her to tell anybody. Yeah, and that's the thing because that could easily have been an older woman, but an older woman would have realised this was a thing that people needed to know. Yeah, the point of Jack as a character is as the everybody starts to get picked off, there are essences in the team that are what they're trying to preserve. Mm. And what they end up with in the final analysis is faith and innocence.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Jack starts off um, overcompensating uh, as a boy and says, yeah, thanks for saving our dicks. And similar, sort of like trying to be a little bit macho. And then as soon as Riddick starts hanging around with the group, Jack goes, right, that's safety. I'm going to shave my head. Put on these, uh, uh, these glasses to imitate uh, Riddick and, and kind of like a puppy hang around with him in a way that you know, if I do this, maybe I won't die. Yeah. And I will note without talking about it later that what they do with Jack in the Chronicles of Riddick is fucking goddamn ridiculous considering the groundwork covered ridiculous? here. <laughs> That's interesting you should say that. Okay, Imam played by Keith David. Bringing his incredible Mm. voice to the... Oh, God, I love this guy. I know. You know what? I had never seen a Keith David film until There's Something About Mary in 1998, just two years before this. Wow. He turns up and he's like, I'm just fucking with the kid. Um, Uh,
1: You had, but you didn't know it was a Keith David film because I'm assuming that you saw They Live before that.
0: No, I think I saw They Live after that. Really? Okay, fair enough. I think I had seen the... thing before there's something about Mary but I did not tie the two Keith Davids together, and I definitely hadn't seen they live. Roddy Piper and Keith David just punching each other in the dick for an hour. It's great.
1: (laughs) quite that long
0: we've got to talk about they live at some point yeah. anyway imam is completely the opposite and never punched anyone in the dick no uh, and uh, he is a uh, well, the imam is his title it's it's like rabbi but uh, he is of the muslim faith he's going to new mecca mm-hmm. which is apparently a place yeah. and he is shepherding three boys that he has a, a vuncular attitude to they barely ever speak to each other but it's just very clear they trust him to keep them alive and all of them die
1: absolutely they, they- they are effectively aspects of him. They don't move about or really do anything separate from him. As you say, none of them really engage in any conversation with anybody, but he is stripped down to his fundamental... his, his faith is challenged mm. because he loses all three
0: of them. I've just realised what this reminds me of now, a film that I saw way after Pitch Black and appreciated later in life, Lawrence of Arabia. The the boy that in the sand, uh, the yeah. quicksand, he's yeah. just trying to save. It represents a part of him that he just losing. That boy crushes him. It slowly wears Imam down, so that even though he's, uh, he and Riddick share a conversation where Riddick ridicules him for having faith. I have already prayed with the others.
2: It is painless. It's pointless because you do not believe in God does not mean God does not believe Think in you. Think someone can spend half their life in a slam with a horse bit in their mouth and not believe? Think he could start out in some liquor store trash bin with an umbilical cord wrapped around his neck and not believe? Got it all wrong, holy man. I absolutely believe in God. And I absolutely hate the fucker. He is with us nonetheless. Two of your boys are already dead. How much faith do you have left, father?
0: Riddick's response is, no, 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 I I believe in God, but my life's been so horrible that I think that God is malevolent. Mm. And then when bad things happen, he again sneers at Imam for having faith at all. And then as the boys are taken, Imam at the end is just on his knees crying because it's like, it's genuinely threatening his faith and he's beginning to doubt that there's anything in the universe of benevolence. Mm. It's barely spoken, it's all in Keith David's performance, physically but uh it's it's a a key aspect of the film
1: absolutely and it, it's barely spoken but it is spoken once in, in a really important uh, divided conversation where the the boys are all dead and having gone through a phase earlier in the story where they were completely without water and absolutely desperate for it it now starts to piss it down with rain Mm. right when they don't need it because they're trying to trek back to the settlement and if it gets all muddy they're not going to be able to, to drag what they have to drag through the mud and riddick says to the imam where's your god now and he has no response he can't he can't say anything there is nothing he can come back with to that but then at the very end when the moment of saving happens
0: you can spoil it <laughs> oh
1: okay fair enough okay so at the very end when the, the the last few people left alive have had to be left behind in a cave while Riddick takes the power cells back to the little jump skiff that they're trying to get off the planet in and there's a point where no one's really expecting him to come back and Fry goes back over there and persuades him to come back with her, but we don't know that yet. We go back to the cave, the rock is rolled aside, and it's revealed that Riddick has come back for them, and the Imam says, There There is my God." god.
0: Showing himself through the selfless actions of people. The creatures. Now, these are like ravenous sharks or jackals or piranhas. They're not the same as the alien. The xenomorph. The, the xenomorph lurks and hides and then lurches out at you. These things are predators who are used to having ruled the roost on this planet. Absolutely. They barge against each other, they fight in mid-air. Yeah. They're chaotic. They will lurk and wait in the dark, but I think the, the scariest thing about them is they appear to be blind and that they hunt via sonar. In this environment where they have perfectly adapted to be apex predators, it makes it feel like the crew are in fact not out in the open air, but deep underwater, where there is no light, only monsters. Like if you've if you watch a documentary about deep, deep sea fish, mm-hmm. like fucking pilot fish, you'd be like, okay, so nightmares forever. Because if you if if reincarnation is real, and you're bad in this life, and then you're reincarnated as just a minnow who is born deep underwater, you'd be like, okay, so I'm in pitch black and I'm a minnow. Just yeah. come and fucking eat me I'm... under that <laughs> circumstance. Well, then,
1: Okay, there is something about them that looks a bit hammerhead sharky. Yeah. And they clearly have that thing where like they... a
0: child chased by sharky sharky. Like
1: you said, they they have evolved perfectly for their environment. Because people keep observing that this planet appears to be dead. There's graveyards full of the bones of a, a, a great beast, almost like an elephant with huge... They look like elephants with huge antlers, but mm-hmm. all we can see is the skeletons. So maybe they weren't that. Maybe they were dinosaurs. We don't know. But whatever they were, they all gathered in one place and then got stripped the bone yeah. by something and it becomes apparent that it's these creatures Again, like piranhas, now,
0: they just strip everything down absolutely. And they, but they've eaten everything But
1: they've eaten everything, that's the thing They've they've whatever these big creatures were, they've done it to them then humans, a small uh, portion of humans settled
0: A small helping
1: <laughs> And they did exactly the same thing to them they all gathered in one place and then they come in and strip them down to the bones mm. and so you've got this, this uh, cellar full of, of human skeletons the difference i think between them and the xenomorphs is that the xenomorphs are they they go into some form of of hiding mm. it's not hibernation exactly but it's almost like they can be reduced down to an egg and that egg can sit there for as long as it needs to mm. until something comes along that enables them to flare back up again mm. what these creatures seem to do is strip what's there sleep then go underground eat each other to keep going, mm. and then when something else turns up that they can eat that's not each other, they'll emerge and go back after that. They're eating each other, and, and then they're going to eat me! <laughs> oh, oh my, my god! god! And then we we find out through the, the astrological model that the human settlement has in it, that there is a solar cycle of 22 years that occurs on this planet. So these three suns keep it in perpetual light for 22 years, and then there's an eclipse, and during that eclipse is when the creatures come out and eat whatever's on the surface. It would
0: be a lasting darkness. So we're
1: saying 22 years, which is a generation, Mm -hmm. is long enough for something to settle and spread enough that it provides them with an amount of food. There's one creature on this planet that seems to have evolved well that we see there may well be others but that seems to have evolved with a natural defence against these beings and it's a tiny little grub with bioluminescence because the one thing that these creatures cannot bear
0: is light. light
1: even weak light is enough to burn them
0: so if you're the Tron guy, you're going to be okay.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> cover yourself with luminous paint and bring a black light. Um,
0: <laughs> <laughs> Who has a black light? It was made in 1999. <laughs> then everyone.
1: Um, so the these little these little bugs, which would seem to be entirely benevolent, they've got no, they haven't even got like or anything. Benevolent bugs. Benevolent bugs. They can't hurt anybody, but nothing on this planet can hurt them. Hmm. This film is about the magic of evolution.
2: Yes. These people didn't leave, come on. Whoever got Zeke got them, they're all dead. You don't really think they left with their clothes on the hooks, photos on the shelves? Maybe they had weight limits, you don't know. I know you don't prep your emergency ship unless there's a fucking emergency. He's fucking right. Watch your mouth. He's just seeing what we're all thinking.
0: Uh, there's also, I noticed in the um, the, the making of uh, materials, they had some uh, concept art for the creatures. And when they're standing up and you've got the, that hammerhead flared outwards and then you've got their arms and then you've got their double-forked tail, it actually reminded me of Da Vinci's Vitruvian Man. You know, the, the man standing with six arms? Like, it is a portrait of the human frame. And it, it just felt like these shark thingies... When they stand up, are actually kind of frighteningly human. They're also, you know, it's it's uh, Patrick Totopoulos, the guy who designed the uh, late '90s Zilla from Roland Emmerich's Godzilla film, uh, who then went on to do all the uh, designs for both the Chronicles of Riddick and Thor by Kenneth Branagh. Huh. Uh, but yeah, he's he's clearly evoking the Giga alien, but there's something even more human about these things than Giga's alien. Like they. Even though most of the time what we're seeing is it's never a guy in a suit, mm. weirdly. Yeah,
1: yeah. It just
0: it seems like they're humans that have evolved to just have enormous mouths that will eat you.
1: I don't know which is worse, them or us. You don't see them fucking each other over for a goddamn percentage.
0: Yes These you do. These guys
1: eat each other when there's nothing else around.
0: They're worse that than the alien. Is
1: very human.
0: Oh man. Does that make them capitalism analogies?
1: Let's strip line everything until there's nothing left. Well, yes. Thus
0: solving the problem forever. But what if forever? Oh, thank you. So, <laughs> I noticed this time around watching that they look their best when Riddick is looking at them, and especially if there's a mix of practical. When light falls on this early CG, and it's supposed to be natural light, or at least light from a uh, electrical source. Mm-hmm. they, they look like CG. It looks like really basic, cheap ass, very low texture CG. But when Riddick's looking at them, the light's all strange and weird and almost predator vision. And we have no frame of reference for what should look right or wrong there. They are effectively then shapes moving in this swirl of color. And under those circumstances, they're terrifying and very real. In doing my research for this series of shows, I came across quite a lot of Riddick lore experts online. And someone has christened these shark creatures Bioraptors. So now you know. Now we all know. <laughs> Lieutenant Johns. This is Cole Hauser's character. He is... I wrote in my notes that he is a del Toro villain. He is a mercenary playing at being a cop. And these days, even if he was a cop, he'd be a cop playing at being a soldier. Uh, But he's an addict, uh, which is fine. We We aren't necessarily going to judge people for being addicted, but he also is a cowardly backstabbing snake hiding behind a mall security guard badge a blue vest a shotgun and a seemingly good guy in quote unquote remit of chasing down a bad guy quote unquote Kohlhauser's threatening demeanour and cruel eyes tell us really quickly that this guy is not your hero
1: absolutely Riddick refers to him in his opening monologue as the the blue
0: eyed devil yeah.
1: So you've you've got that instant sense of the good guy and it it sets it up quite well. The people who appear to be the good guys superficially, you know sh- going in are not really going to be the good guys. And that, therefore, makes you question whether the bad guys are really mm. the bad guys. And the 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 yeah. essence of where, or the, the fundamental element of where uh, this drug addiction comes in, and like I said, he, he mentions to Carolyn that it's because Riddick stabbed him in the back and there's a piece of the shiv still stuck in there. Mm. So it's like and a he can punch.
0: feel it grinding around in there.
1: Absolutely. Uh, so it's like we're not judging him for the use of the, the morphine, but... In the opening when owens is dying
0: he desperately carolyn, needed that morphine absolutely, and couldn't find it
1: carolyn sends somebody to get that she says there's some there's some medicine in the first aid cabinet but because the back end of the ship is wrecked that's long gone yeah so they have nothing ostensibly they have nothing that they can give owens to ease his passing and then it turns out that john's had this years supply of morphine he could have given him even just a shot or two and it would have helped and he said nothing and yeah. that's what makes Caroline angry that he allowed owens to die in pain knowing there was something he could have done and he didn't and given that carolyn's arc is i could have done something and i tried to avoid it and so she needs to compensate for that of course she's going to hate him even more for doing the same thing
0: I think that makes John's neutral evil. Now, if we're gonna go by D&D alignment charts, obviously it's a lot of pigeonholes and there's a lot of intersection between that type of character, but it's worthwhile mentioning that in this because the morality is not, it's blurry, but it's still fairly distinguished by action. Because it's contained entirely in one movie, which is so much easier than a TV show, uh, you can actually establish that in this case, John's let a man die in terrible pain so that he could hold on to his stash That's a work of evil. That is directly, like, standing by and going, well, it's not even, there's nothing I can do. It's, there's something I can do, but I'm not gonna, because I want this thing.
1: Also, there's something I can do, and it's not even going to inconvenience me all that much.
0: Yeah. And... But he's not lawful evil, because it feels like Johns would break laws whenever he needs to in order to get things done.
1: Ironically, he is masquerading as lawful something.
0: Yeah, and he's not chaotic evil, because he's not just going around doing evil shit because it, it, no. it's fun. He's just only out for himself, yeah. to a degree that's entirely uh, at the expense of everyone else, which is a terrible kind of person to have in a group of survivors. Yes,
1: absolutely. And he more to the point as well he starts to do things and say things to deliberately put wedges Mm. between the group to prevent people from doing things to help each other which is their natural inclination Mm. and then as things start to really progress he like you said after the reveal comes about jack being on a period john's effectively says to riddick he's pretty open about this let's kill her
0: drag her behind us and use her as bait
1: to keep these things off our backs so that we can get to where we need to be
0: and the the distinction lies in Paris who is uh, jittery and cowardly but makes no bones about that. He's Mm. like, I'm a jittery coward. Whatever you do, do not look to me as a leader. Absolutely. Whereas Johns tries to lead them and just to get his own interests served. Indeed.
1: And when Carolyn starts to make instructions for leading, he tries to undermine her. Yeah, he actively
0: disrupts it. So
1: she says to him, fine, what's your plan then? And he's got nothing to say.
0: Mm. In subsequent Riddick media, they attempted to create some measure of animosity between Riddick and another Merc or someone like that so that Riddick could have a foil someone that Riddick could feel like you know once you you go up against I suppose the ugly and the good, the bad and the ugly only it's the bad, the badder and the ugly (laughs) I'm thinking of Nick Chinland here do you remember poor Billy Bedlam he's in the uh, Chronicles of Riddick and Dark Fury as this kind of scumbag merc mm-hmm. uh, and they're like there is so much built up between him and Riddick and it never really sells poor Nick Chinlund is actually scary as as Billy Bedlam but not as the character he plays in Chronicles of Riddick yeah. uh, but there is a genuine like the, it works in this film putting Johns up against Riddick mm-hmm. because you've got the guy that you were supposed to be following and the guy you're supposed to fear and hate and loathe and keep as an outsider you've got your paragon apparently maybe not paragon necessarily but your your militaristic commander type who you know you should get behind and you've got your lone crazy rabid wolf who you're supposed to cry out whenever you see them so that you can all get together and go hunt it with sticks and eventually it turns out to be the commander who is the thing that will kill
1: you Absolutely. well his his opening uh, conversation with everybody seems to be to keep them as terrified of Riddick as possible
0: Maybe to f- skull fuck you in your sleep.
1: Absolutely. Because, and here's the thing, if Riddick's not a threat, what the fuck do they need him for?
0: Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't know about the Greeblies yet. But, and uh, he's
1: yeah. useless against them.
0: Absolutely. Now, Vin Diesel is often at his worst when he wields supreme control over a project both as an unusually dull screen presence and a difficult actor off-camera. We talked about Fast and Furious 8, where it just went off the rails with him and The Rock going at it behind the scenes. And eventually, I'm not talking to him. I'm not talking to him either. I'm going to go get my own Fast and Furious with Blackjack and Hookers. Jason, you coming? Yeah, all right. I don't like either of them, but I'm coming back for a cameo, right? family, family be- 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 here, young and hungry, with minimal control creatively, and an urge to be his best self, he really excels. He is captivating and truly memorable. And he makes Pitch Black different to most other Alien Greebly films. Mm. But this film holds a very mediocre Tomatometer score, which is another good reason why, the, like ultimately, when it comes down to it, that it's it can sometimes be helpful to tell you whether you should spend a large amount of money going to see something at the cinema, which you hoped was good, but from the sounds of it, the professionals are not shit hot on it. Maybe wait. But sometimes when you go back and you find out that a film that was actually really good to you, uh, the critics were like, "Eh, this is derivative." Mm-hmm. So some critics all
1: these classics that the critics all thought was magnificent and you've only just seen it after 40 odd years and you go, eh, eh, it's fine." Right.
0: <laughs> so yeah, it was considered to be too formulaic for a lot of folks, including um, Ebert. Roger Ebert didn't like this one. And I can understand why. It's Roger not really It doesn't thing. like lots of, a things. Lot of things. It's it's not as bad as North, though. Uh, <laughs> but see Like, they called it formulaic. To me, it's more like Uncharted, coming back to Chloe again, doing something that we have seen elsewhere in a pared-down, focused, and to us, memorable fashion. Way back when Uncharted was first released, I was like, so this is like Tomb Raider, but with a guy, and with uh, Gears of War-style cover-based combat, and it feels quite Indiana Jones. Mm -hmm. So we've seen almost all of these elements already. Yeah. But also it has kind of a Firefly-ish sense of humour about it and this is funny and I like these characters. Absolutely. And I mean, so it began as derivative but and it remains derivative but it is also a really strong series in its own right.
1: Absolutely. Saying, some, saying that something is formulaic does not inherently make it bad because you can present that formula well or poorly. And at this stage in human history, I think it's a bit rich expecting creators to come up with new elements every time. Yeah. It's like, okay, pretty much everything in the universe has been discovered now. What we want to know is how you can put those elements together. And that is the definition of a formula.
0: But that's the thing. Riddick is the new element. Like, did you not see the Vin Diesel performance in this movie? Absolutely. It's it's like the equivalent of this would, like, had happened before in other things where the rough guy actually helps you to get out of it. But this one was, there's a kind of a singular ooh, what's going on here? Like A presence that's that's um, di- being delivered on screen. Ultimately, what, what we're seeing the beginning of a superstar. The Fast and Furious films are huge. The world over, still, 22 years later, and that is largely to do with Vin Diesel charming people in the right way at the right times, whether he's lazy now or not. Well, do you want
1: to tell me about the sounds?
2: You mean the whispers? The one's telling me to go for this sweet spot just to the left of the spine. Fourth lumbar down, the abdominal aorta. It's a metallic taste, human blood. Coppers. If you cut it with peppermint snaps, that goes away. of course you going
1: to shop me with the truth now?
2: All you people are so scared of me. Most days I take that as a compliment. But it ain't me you got to worry about now. Show me your eyes, Riddick. You'd have to come a lot closer for that.
1: Where the hell can I get eyes like that?
2: Gotta kill a few people. Hey, I can do it. And you gotta get sent to a slam where they tell you I'll never see daylight again. You dig up a doctor and you pay him twenty menthol cools to do a surgical shine job on your eyeballs, so he can see you sneaking up on you in the dark. Exactly. Leave. Leave. Cute kid. Did I kill a few people? Sure. Did I kill Zeke?
0: So you may or may not be gripped in (laughs) Pitsar... One of our uh, uh, patrons, Josh Waster, said, one of the only movies I've ever walked out on uh, when I uh, tweeted about this. I was like, oh, God, we're going to have to work extra hard to get Josh on board. Josh, I hope you're still listening. And if we get to the very end and you're like, yep, still, nope, then you gave us a shot. You may be gripped because due to the neutral, non-heroic style and merciless animalistic threat that preys on women and children first... Literally anyone could die. And by the end, expectations are repeatedly confounded. Again, it's easier to do that in a movie because within that two-hour stretch, you've got, oh my God, anybody could die. And then you get to the end on that. In a TV show like Walking Dead or Game of Thrones, anybody could die. You're asked to come back week after week and you're like, do I really want to commit to this character when they could die? Like that's different. That's a different asking of an audience for me. If it's a film, it's like, what's going to happen next? I guess I'll know within the end of this two hour stretch. Mm. You know? There is a vital need for original thinking and presentation in movies. We watched El Topo the other day by uh, Hordorowski. It's fucking weird. <laughs>
1: You bring in too many new elements and no old formulas, and it's just a mess.
0: But it's—it's it's not. It's kind of a weird send-up of um, the Western genre as it stood in the '70s. It's—it's—it's it's, it's almost like it's doing Leone and Peckinpah, but in an even more weird and twisted way. So it's derivative, but it's. Fucking around with those things that it's taking.
1: What if Ken Russell, but Western?
0: But you see, wholly original films, like like anything written by Charlie Kaufman, for example, being John Malkovich adaptation. It's going to be quirky and weird, and Eternal Sunshine of the Spot- Spotless Mind. But that's not necessarily going to get all audiences on board. You get like if you go too quirky and weird, you actually make something which only one percent of people like. There needs to be a balance, and the best balance is. Keep doing the weird shit and let the weirdness filter down as its influences spread out to other material that can maybe sand off the harsh corners and make something that's quirky enough to keep things being unexpected within what appears to be derivative material. But also, completely confounding expectation doesn't 100% work all the time. Back to Game of Thrones, that last season when it's like, oh. Okay, so they they didn't do what was going to be satisfying but predictable, but they did do what was unpredictable and unsatisfying. Alright. And we've just invested nearly 10 years of our lives in this thing. Anyway.
1: Well, we haven't.
0: No, we gave up after season three. That red wedding. Fuck no but without that originality we stagnate. But I'd also say it's reductive to dismiss works that play to their strengths with established formula purely because you've seen stuff like this before.
1: Exactly, if you do, if, if somebody does the formula really, really well and convincingly and the characters are engaging and the, the presentation of the formulaic events are convincing and satisfying, how is that bad?
0: Also, it can be quite obnoxious if, you're, if, if your critical response is just, yeah, yeah, I've seen it. And it's like. I've seen it. I've seen it. <laughs> now, obviously, I, I uh, attacked Scream 5 with a. This is derivative not only of horror movies, but of its own series. Yeah, if
1: you're derivative of yourself, then you maybe need to think carefully about yeah. what you're doing.
0: But critical thinking is extremely important. It is actually vital that you can say incisive, negative things about media and stories and entertainment that fail to impact in that same way
1: but it's also important to look at it in terms of it's not a case of this thing is good and this thing is bad whatever form this thing takes is always going to be good Mm. and whatever form this thing takes is always going to be bad you have to take every individual presentation on its own
0: merits so let let us take you through riddick because effectively what it actually is is a dance of the seven veils so riddick changes throughout the movie you start with him as one thing then he becomes something else then something else he never wildly changes but there's just enough information given and enough confounding of expectations that he begins to kind of metamorphose as a character which makes him intriguing to watch so he begins as this animalistic killer but because he's talking to us we're already kind of in with him. If they had started the film without Riddick talking to us, he would have been a lot scarier. Mm, yeah.
1: and that gravelly
0: voice makes us think of Wolverine.
1: It does, and the fact that we open with... Because I, I, the first note that I wrote was that we open in crisis, but we don't. What we open with is everybody asleep, Riddick's still awake and him explaining why, but that voice gives us this sense of it's almost like a lullaby it's almost soothing Mm. and then you get the little mini meteors whipping through the ship and waking everybody up and killing everyone
0: but we're confronted visually when he's giving us this lullaby with rather than the voice of a man who's clearly got things together he's like a caged animal he's his arms are back behind him he's got a blindfold over his eyes and a bit in his mouth he's muzzled and kind of like a caged bear
1: yeah and his words are giving us that same impression because he says that the what's the what's the line they say the only part of you that stays awake during cryo sleep is the animal side the primitive side the primitive side. brain I guess that's why I'm still awake but he's using words mm. that is not part of the animal brain
0: yeah He's a contradiction, which also kind of comes down to writing that uh, at times tries to make him cooler than he probably would be, or should be. But yeah, so he starts out like that. Then when they're on the planet, he escapes and he's off in the periphery. And he's being, we're being told by Johns over and over again that he's a terrible threat. And the, um, the extent of his wrath visited upon these characters is going to be horrific.
2: Well, maybe you just come back and skullfuck you in your sleep.
0: And this do-bear-in-mind comes at the tail-end of the 1990s fascination with serial killers, which never really went away. But when there's a, spe- there's a specific moment when Fry is talking with Johns out in the open and she's leaning up her back against the ribcage of a giant ancient beast now dead and Riddick, we are shown in flashes during the, the quite sparky edits that keep us on edge that Riddick is behind these bones unbeknownst to Johns and he has his bony knife just ready to, like. it seems like he's about to kill Fry and then what he ends up doing is taking a bit of her hair and then sniffing it which would be so fucking creepy but then he kind of just throws it away uh, so it's a bit less creepy just a smidge less, like he's not keeping trophies.
1: No, it's more just to show that he could have killed her in that moment but didn't, that's how close he got she never even knew that he did it so that's how subtle he was but there is also, when he first turns up again after having gone missing he appears uh, Paris has set up like a deck chair on top of uh, the, the. A, lean to a
0: parasol and yeah, a little
1: parasol and a little table, bistro and a,
0: table and, and absolute, a croissant. And they're,
1: they're all talking about how terrified they are of Riddick returning. And he sat up there on the chair. And the thing that popped into my head was, well, you let me know if Real Power wants a magazine or something.
0: Honestly, that <laughs> shot—it's got kind of a crash zoom because David Two is actually pretty good at depth of field and working out what, like, what to then cut to. Uh, so yeah, they're all talking about him, and it cuts to him in the background. It, this is. Just after Paul Leland Orsa shows up, who was instrumental in the fascination with serial killers. Is that Leland Orsa? That was Leland Orsa. He's in Alien Resurrection, okay. but he was also in Seven. He's the uh, the living victim of the lust crime.
1: Oh, well, yeah. Yeah. Technically, he's the perpetrator. <laughs>
0: There are two victims of that crime. One of them is dead, the other one is alive, and then there's Michael Massey going, no, I'm not proud of what I do. I live, once again, on an island made of garbage.
2: Yeah, Brad Pitt, I live in a landfill, okay? Not only do I work here,
0: I live here
2: too. Is that what
0: you want me to say? Are you going to eat that fishbone on your shoe? Because I want to eat it. And if I don't want to eat it, I'm just going to put it in my front yard. You know why? Because my front yard is a mass
2: of garbage. Or I might just lick it to get the fish taste in my mouth.
0: <laughs> so, yeah, it, it, Leland Orser turns up, gets shot by Zeke in the back, who thought he was Riddick, and then they're like, no, no, Riddick is taller than that or like doesn't look like Leland Orser. And then it crash zooms to Riddick sitting on Paris' little bistro table deck chair He takes a swig of high-proof liquor and then pops the cap back on, saving the rest for later. He's not just, like, going, ah, fuck it, blah, blah, blah. He's being careful. But to me, that shot is almost like Bugs Bunny. Like, he's like, nah, nah, you got the wrong guy. (laughs) It's a bit of black humour, especially after we've just seen a very gory death. Yeah. So then, eventually, they 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 find what remains of uh, another one of the settlers. Uh, it's Zeke, who's uh, horribly killed this time, the guy who accidentally killed Leland Orsa. And they catch Riddick because Johns utilises his sensitivity to light. Now, Riddick's eyes are kind of like they've been stripped down. He's actually technically weaker rather than uh, stronger in, in terms of being a human being.
1: He is susceptible to pain from light in a... Similar way to the creatures, although it manifests in yeah. his eyes rather than his...
0: He excels in uh, in the dark, but anywhere out of the dark, he's absolutely fucked. Which, by the way, means uh, an extremely limited colour palette and aesthetic for your future films, which are all going to have to be shadowy.
1: And it's the result of a, a procedure that he's had done in prison, because he was in a jail that was way underground mm. and no light, and basically this is how you get to see when you're there.
0: Riddick heads, don't start tweeting yet. We will be covering the truth of the matter when we talk about Escape from Butcher Bay, which is a Patreon exclusive, but ostensibly, in Pitch Black we have to take Riddick for his word here. And so, he usually wears these goggles that look like really, really cool sunglasses. So they manage to catch him, they lock him up, and then he's similar to Hannibal Lecter, similar to Sabretooth, who they had in the 90s X-Men comics, repeatedly Uh, imprisoned in the Xavier Mansion and everyone who came to visit Sabretooth was just like you don't seem so bad and then he'd fuck with them psychologically Uh, but Riddick does something similar and that's always kind of been fascinating to me but I can it's very tedious watching it being done badly it has to be done balanced just right before it gets too navel gazy Mm. there has to be a measure of disgust inherent in the audience rather than admiration
1: yeah well the the difficulty i think when you're creating that kind of character is when they're set up as being this they can get inside your head they can figure out what really terrifies you they can make you turn your fears back in on yourself so that you effectively end up defeating yourself for them unfortunately if the writers are unimaginative the thing that the bad guy pulls out of each and every person he comes into contact with is pretty much the same. And the more he does it, the more it becomes apparent that he is a very one-trick pony.
0: Indeed. I like the fact that he starts with Fry and goes a little bit too hard in the direction of almost Halloween levels of scary. He starts talking, muttering about drinking human blood and that copperish taste goes away when you cut it with peppermint snaps and Fry could almost retort, oh yeah, so you're just sitting around drinking blood cocktails all night? Okay, cool. You're so tough and hard. She does... Level at him, cut the shit. Like, I need to know information here, and you're being withholding, and it might kill all of us.
1: Indeed. And the fact that she then later bookends the film by saying to him, yes, you do terrify me, however... I've got shit to do. I do not have time to be terrified of you right now. Yeah.
0: I, I really like uh, Rada Mitchell's physical performance as he's beckoning her closer and closer. She's sort of like, her shoulders become rigid. It uh, the, the shot drops down to her waist and she's kind of got her hands clasped to her sides and she rubs them against the top of her thighs because clearly her palms are sweating like crazy. It's this total tension so, which actually helps to... Cell Riddick, sitting in the dark, master of all he surveys, even though he's technically a captive, and it it plays into the theater of what he's doing,
1: mm, yeah, but it but also, it's
0: all an act
1: absolutely, and it also serves to make everybody around him seem more human. it I think with this, if you play, the, the your quote unquote villain character at this point up too much like I said there's the, the one trick pony element and also it starts to feel like he's where all your focus is Yeah. honestly and like you said we'll talk about them later but one of the reasons that it went off the cliff after this <clears throat> is that there was too much focus on Riddick yeah. here he is dispersed and reflected by the characters around him.
0: And like I said, it's all an act. If the later films don't acknowledge that it was all an act and they go, no, he really is that cool, you not only make bad films, you make this first film less good by comparison.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And one thing that I think really gets taken away later on is how he wants to relate to people, but can't, to begin with. There's a turning moment when... They're coming through the canyon, and I can't remember the exact thing that leads up to it, but one of the beasties arrives and starts to attack Jack. Mm. And she's it was a
0: Jack-Jack attack. A
1: Jack-Jack attack. She's trapped under a, a rib Ribcage. cage. There's a, rib There's a lot of rib cages in There's a lot of rib cages here. They're very handy for some protection, but we can also see what's going on. Yeah. So she's under this rib cage, and the, the beast is kind of hacking on the front with its, it's head. Its
0: head-butting it, yeah, because it's and a hammerhead.
1: Fry rushes in with a flare or a a, a lamp or whatever it is she's got for light source at that point to
0: hit it in the eyes effectively with with too much light.
1: Exactly, and and she's she's even though
0: it doesn't have eyes,
1: flailing and human. (laughs) It doesn't have eyes. No, but the light burns its skin. Right. The so she she kind of rushes in and she's her voice is very weak at this point. It's it it was obviously or it seemed as though. Tui was trying to capture the spirit of get away from her, you You bitch. bitch. But it doesn't have the energy of get away from her, you bitch.
0: By the way, whenever anyone calls the director Tui, all I can think of is...
1: Does it have to be human? Does it have to be mine? Entirely underpowered at this stage what's she really going to do the light she's reduced to is is minimal Mm. and yet she keeps running in and trying to push this thing away from Jack so that she can get Jack out Mm. and Riddick sees this and it almost seems to to, there almost seems to be this moment in his head, you can see it happen of she was going to kill everybody and this is where she's come to Mm. if she can change her mind maybe I can too
0: yeah, his uh, his act when he's talking to uh, uh, Fry when he's chained up is to get her to question John's that she's put her faith in even though she's slightly creeped out by him. She, Riddick has sat in the bone cage watching her talk with John's and watching ta- uh, John spin his line of shit but his fucking with her mentally is making her question her perception. He then goes on to be kind of a blind seer or certainly the man who dwells in darkness and is actually a a pretty good survivor in this difficult situation he would not survive indefinitely but he can survive better than the rest of them yeah he's physically mentally and psychologically more keyed up for this kind of environment and so whenever he says don't move Not moving is actually the smart idea. Absolutely,
1: under those circumstances.
0: And then whenever someone moves, they get eaten by piranha things.
1: But he does also, by the way people respond to him, in particular Carolyn... And she does this with Johns and she does it with with Riddick as well. When they do that thing of, ah, but I know what you've thought in the deepest, darkest moments of the night, in your, your moments of absolute weakness. And her response is, it's not quite this, but it's essentially, well, yes, I'm a human. I've thought bad things. I've done bad things. But I can change that and I can move beyond that. It's it's almost like, you know, when when... That should be the counter when the bad guy throws at you, but you had a thought that you were going to do a terrible thing, and that shows that you're weak. Well, who knows where thoughts come from? They They just just appear. It's what you act on that counts, and ultimately what defines Carolyn is how she acts at the end of the movie.
0: Yeah. Dickheads who do terrible things, their rationale is evil thoughts equals evil person. And they're like, well, look, just everyone must think this bad stuff. They just don't do it. I can't be evil. I'm just following the natural conclusion. And then they start talking about power and those too weak to seek it. And it just all, it's, they are very crumbly arguments. They don't it, stand up it, you, to the your, lightest amount of questions. Your
1: brain, generally speaking, your brain or a, a human's brain is as likely to put forth impulsive good thoughts as impulsive bad thoughts. It's the ones you choose to act on.
2: Yeah.
0: So when he speaks to the imam, he is the believer who's full of hate. He, Weirdly enough, he he says, I absolutely hate the fucker, but Riddick does not exhibit that much hate for anything or anyone else. He is contemptuous of Johns. But it's not like he reserves... That's understandable. Yeah, he is disapproving of everything Johns does. and But it's not like he reserves a special place in his heart to hate Johns. And it's actually kind of refreshing to see a, a character who's clearly bad... Uh, who doesn't hate that much. This is, again, why I, I refer to him as true neutral. Mm. He could do evil things in this, and he I don't think he ever does. I don't think he ever actually kills someone who didn't need to be killed. His body count is John's, and his version of Get Away From Her You Bitch is shortly after the Carolyn uh, trying to save Jack-Jack, and he takes on this shark single-handedly with a shiv, Kills it very stylishly and then mutters, Did not know who was fucking with. Trying to be cool.
1: Indeed. Also, there is an argument to be made that he does not kill Johns. He does to Johns what Johns wanted to do to Jack, and then he lets the sharks come Mm. and kill him.
0: But this is what I mean about true neutral. If he was neutral evil, like both he and Johns keep talking about, Mm. he would have killed anyone else. Indeed. Just to further his
2: advantage. Absolutely, but he doesn't. You're absolutely right, he does not. Finally found something worse than me, huh? So here's the deal: you work without chains, without bit, and without shivs. You do what I say when I say it. For what? The honor of going back to some asshole of a cell? Fuck you. The truth is, is I'm tired of chasing you. Are you saying you'd cut me loose? I'm thinking you could have died in a crash. My recommendation, to do me. Don't take the chance that I get shit happy on your wannabe ass. OK. Ghost me, motherfucker. That's what I would do to you. I want you to remember this moment. The way it could have gone and didn't. Yeah.
0: talk about where he aligns in his later incarnations later on but I mean that's kind of the core of the character. These these movies move in broad strokes but I think the best aspect of Pitch Black is how Riddick keeps changing along the... Riddick is rich enough for us to still want to see what what he's doing Mm -hmm. throughout this even when by the end he actually turns out to be Eddie on my planet I am kind of a loser. In fact that is a plus point for his character
1: mm,
0: yeah. again with the talking about drinking blood he's a braggart and he's a liar and he exaggerates and his discussion of you know being thrown into a prison where you never see daylight again I was born in a box of pinball machine parts and my mother stabbed me in the heart with a clothes hanger
1: <laughs> it's worth noting the only person who is impressed by any of this is Jack is 12. Yeah.
0: But I mean again that's good because it suggests that if you have an immature mentality you'll think that all this coolness is enough of a pursuit in and of itself mm. that you get to that level of Fonzie cool and then there you are as and, opposed and then to what
1: happens um, um
0: well I'm cool then I'm and, glad to know that you think I am cool
1: and then where does cool get you Uh,
0: Probably because it sounded cool. Anyway, after that, he actively does kill Johns. But it's a a kind of a... Because Johns has thrown down his hand at this stage and said, you know, let's get out of here. You and I, we're the strong ones. We can let these people die. And then we'll win. And Riddick's like, okay, so you'll then kill me as soon as we're, we're off. Like, internally, he doesn't trust Johns at all, but he's worked out that just being true neutral and kind of being emotionally distant from the rest of the group that he's been kind of helping through is is, is going to wind up in a point where Johns does something terrible. And now, because Johns has shown his hand, he can't just let Riddick carry on. And also, since his plans are to kill uh, at
2: least Jack. Now that, my friend is a clear-cut case of him, of me. And you best believe it ain't gonna be me.
0: And yet, at the last few seconds, he's still kind of taunting him from the darkness. Johns has himself pursued his version of cool. You know, you, you got to be this version of yourself that you thought was really cool, but where has it gotten you? You're now gonna die out here in the dark, alone, and not even your fleas
2: will mourn you. Ain't all of us gonna make it. Just realize that. Six of us left. If we could make it through the canyon and lose just one, that'd be quite a feat, huh? Not if I'm the one. Well, what if you're one of five? I'm listening. What are they doing up there? They're talking about the canyon, I suppose. How to get us through battlefield doctors decide who lives and dies, it's called triage. Kept calling a murder when I did it. Either way, I figured something you can grab onto. We dragged the body 40, 50 feet behind us. Nice embellishment. Well, I don't want to feed him, I just want to keep him off our son. So which one caught your eye? No, no, don't look. Christ, what the hell's wrong with you? Elmo, slow down. Just a little more space between us and that. All right, enough of this shit. You do the girl, and I'll keep the others off your back. It's not too big a job for you, is it? I'm just wondering if I don't need a bigger piece of bait. Like who? you have never taken the chains off, Johns. one brave fuck before. You really badass. The chains, the gauge, the badge. Told you to ghost me. Back to the ship, huh? Just huddle together until the lights burn out. So you can't see what's eating you. That the big plan? Where's John's? Which half? We're gonna lose everybody out here. We should have stayed at the ship. He died fast. And if we have any choice about it, that's the way we should all go out. Don't you cry for John. And to
0: a degree, there's a little bit of, I don't know if this, this was intentional or not, but a, a bit of self-reflection on Riddick's part because he himself has been pursuing that level of, that ideal of a dark, shadowy uh, killer who can always tell you scary things. Riddick's reaching something at this point.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's, there's the dynamic between them is almost that Johns is Riddick's bully. Hmm.
2: Huh. And
1: Riddick has to overcome that to recognise that he can move beyond it.
2: yeah.
0: So then when they get, they end up getting split up, and the only other survivors at this point are Jack and Imam, who's now lost his last boy, and they're stuck in a cave. Riddick goes off to, as as we said, uh, to get the power cells um, to power up the skiff. This is the only time in the movie when you get absolutely natural colors in the light. We'll talk about the color coding in a bit, because we're gonna finish off with some color theory, folks. But
1: 22 year old color theory <laughs> I came up with this when we saw
0: it but when we saw the but, but when you see Riddick in this plain white light he actually looks a lot more human and a lot less exceptional and a lot less scary and you, you take
1: away the shadows he's smaller
0: yeah and he's you know he may be muscular but he's not like the rock hulking huge and I think don't that,
1: say that too loud oh no he'd hate that <laughs>
0: I mean, now Vin Diesel is much bigger and more of a slab of a man, but back then, like I said, he had the body of a panther, and he moves with that purposeful, instinctual grace. And there's this one bit where he has to kind of get his arms that are behind his back, up and all the way round, handcuffed to his front, up and over this sort of gap in the, uh, the beam that he's chained to, and it's... Assisted and, and some clever editing work to uh, to get this to, to happen, but you know when you watch it, the cranking sounds of his bones realigning are enough for you to believe that this is actually happening. And, and from, from the sounds of it, Diesel managed to get his arms three quarters of the way up, which is more than I could. Uh, similarly, Cole Hauser was going to straight up inject his own eyeball with. Uh, this needle to illustrate his morphine habit, and Tui was like, "We probably don't need to go that far." Yeah,
1: I know it's low budget, guys, but we do have some money for models. <laughs> yeah.
0: Like, don't get competitive in how much. This isn't Jackass.
1: Absolutely.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> how much punishment you can take.
1: This is a low budget. Even
0: Jackass thing. isn't Jackass. If
1: you break something fundamental on yourself, we can't afford to hire someone else to reshoot the whole thing. That stop
0: is true. <laughs> So it's like, that's the reason the Mission Impossible films are kind of amazing, because Tom Cruise is like, yeah, I'm Tom Cruise. I'll hang to the side of an airplane. Just watch me.
1: Please, Tom, don't. Can we at least do that bit last? <laughs>
0: and then Ethan fell off a plane, and, and- that
1: was the end of the Mission Impossible song. Turned
0: out it was an impossible mission. Anyway, at the end, Fry runs to, uh, to check on Riddick to make sure he hasn't just taken off without them. And he is about to do exactly that. He offers her his hand and says, "Come on, we'll both go." Pretty much the same as what Johns was doing with him. Mm. Like, fuck those people, leave them behind. We'll both go.
1: Absolutely. But at this, and again, you're right. He's mimicking Johns, but it's this really lengthy, protracted. She's genuinely. It doesn't even seem as though she's torn, but she can't. Her freeze instinct. She's frozen. To kick, yeah. kick in, and she ends up collapsed on the floor not able to move herself in either direction
0: it's a she, breakdown
1: she can't muster up the courage because she says to him if you won't come with me then give me more light and I'll go back on my own and he throws her a flashlight and says go for it I'm not going to stop you but she she's trying to draw together the courage to go back for them she can't quite do it but because something... it's fucking
0: terrifying she's wandering off into the dark to be eaten
1: absolutely and, she, and at this stage she's clearly got nothing left But she also can't push herself through the barrier of, this is the wrong thing to do, to take his hand, get on the skiff, and leave with him. She can't do that either.
0: And again, uh, Diesel's performance is fantastic. He extends his hand and he tilts his head away from her so she doesn't have to look him in the eye when she takes it. Mm. It's this real sort of Lucifer on the Mount uh, moment and he is playing the part of the villain, I don't care about anybody and when he says, I will leave you, it's like, you know, I am a villain. And she, again, Rhoda Mitchell responds within, with fiery tempestuousness and eventually snaps out of it, grabs him, thrusts him into the mud, slaps him about the place, and says, No, no, we are going so back funny. for funny,
1: This huge guy, and she's tiny, and she's clearly trying to overpower him, and it's like, oh, sweetheart, that's S- adorable.
0: Swatting him with her twiggler arms... <laughs> and it's enough it's surprising enough for him to go wait a second before he then turns around and overpowers her and holds her at knife point but it's he's overacting at this point anyway he doesn't need to hold her at knife point he's He's just kind of flabbergasted that she's fighting back so hard
1: I don't think he's intending to hurt her at this stage at all but this whole thing has been a test like I said her her coming back her coming out of the cave to defend Jack has piqued his curiosity Hmm. if she can shift so maybe i can too he's now testing her how far will she go to stick to this new path is that something that she can do and when and he's when he's got her in the mud he's saying to her you've got to tell me you verbalize it will you die for them given that that's the first thing you refused to do the first thing you said was she, her I'm, words not are, dying I'm not dying for them. for them yeah and now you're being put in the position where most of them are dead anyway there's only two of them left are you really going to die for those two that are left and she says yes yes i would i promised him that we would go back with more light did you What, are you afraid?
2: <laughs> me afraid? Come on, Riddick. There's got to be some part of you
1: that wants to rejoin the human race.
2: Truthfully, I wouldn't know how.
1: Well, then, just give me more life for them. I'll go back by myself. Okay. There you go. Please just come
2: I got a better idea. Come with me. You're fucking with me. I know you are. You know I am. You don't know anything about me. I'm the bad guy. I will leave you here. Step inside. Again. i you can. Yeah. Here, I'll make it easy. <laughs> Take my hand. Come on. Come on. Look. No one's gonna blame you. Save yourself, Carolyn. <laughs> Come on. You. You listen to me. I am the captain of this ship. I am not leaving anyone on this rock with those fucking things, leaving it me. Get that thing off, my Shut man. up! You died.
1: I would try for them.
2: You didn't answer.
1: Yes, I would, Riddick. I would. I would die for them.
0: You have to ignore a lot of this film to say it's just derivative.
1: Indeed. But like I said, what makes me think that this whole time, in this whole section, he's testing her rather than genuinely wanting to leave himself and therefore overpower her to let him go, because his response to that is... How interesting.
0: Yeah, he, he starts at the skiff in fairly leisurely fashion. He's not like, come on, come on, get the fuck out of here, leave these people. Yeah. He's not doing it out of pure cowardice. but And he's
1: not even out of pure survival because he knows that fundamentally when he goes one-on-one with these things, he can take them.
0: One, maybe. What? He got lucky. <laughs> not a lot. <laughs> but yeah, his response is what fascinates me. He says, how interesting. As opposed to... Billy Badass, let's go and do this, you fucking maniac. I, he is Riley observing humanity yes. at work. Wondering this whole thing could... has been an experience for him that he's somewhat emotionally detached from.
1: Indeed, but he is Riley observing humanity at work, wondering if that is something that he could have a go <laughs> at.
0: And again, this is stuff that really stuck with me. The character of Seth that I created for uh, New Century mutters how interesting, and has that same kind of observing humanity's frailties and pondering his own.
2: How interesting. You speak the truth here. Do you know why your people are so unhappy?
0: (sighs) Because life is hard, and they all unconsciously remember when they were infants and everything was provided for them by others. Maybe. Perhaps ingrained unrealistic expectation.
2: My people know what they must do. My people survive in a way you can never. So, my next question to you is, by what right do humans hold
0: the Earth? And this goes way back even more so. I originally had a blind seer named, uh, I think I mentioned this, I can't remember which episode it was, based on Tiresias, the, uh, the the Greek oracle, um, who was called Vincent Teres and was basically kind of Riddick, but more of a coward and not a killer. Someone who similarly uh, had to kind of come to terms with his own humanity, Oft in this case, because he'd been imprisoned for so long, having his uh, gifts used that he wasn't sure what he could reconnect. So they go back, they rescue Jack and Imam, run as fast as they can uh, back towards the skiff, get separated on the way. There's a a really excellent moment where Riddick is cornered by one of the beasties and finds its dead zone having studied uh, their skeletons and Moves with it, and it's this fantastic shot where the the beastie's hammerhead is this ver- this horizontal line across the bottom, these two giant bones, and Riddick occupies the top two thirds of the screen. And as the creature sways, he sways with it in perfect unison to stay in that dead zone.
1: And we see its sonar vision. and yeah. the fact that he's in its blind spot.
0: And again, like I said. One he managed to uh, deal with, then another one turns up, starts throwing out more sonar, and confuses the issue, which then gets him got.
1: Well, it helps that both of them can now see him because he's being hit with sonar from both sides. Yeah,
0: it's neat. Uh, and again, it's all visual. Like, no one ever says that's what's happening. No one ever sits down and explains what these creatures are doing. But then, when Carolyn finds him, he's you know clearly lost a fight, but not quite dead. And then, They both straighten up and then there's this horrible stab moment where Carolyn gasps. And you're like, has Riddick just stabbed her to use her as bait so that he can get away? And it's a real moment of, I think I had you figured wrong. And he looks sad at that point. And then she gets yanked away by a creature and it's... Actually, no, he didn't stab her. She's... But then when what he ends up muttering to himself while he's in shock, which suggests he definitely didn't stab her, is not for me. Yeah. Like, I don't consider myself to be among these humans that you have said you would die for. You were not supposed to die for me.
1: Well, she's just said to him in, in trying to get him up out of the, the water in the on-your-feet-soldier moment because clearly she can't carry Vin Diesel. That's not happening. Um, but she says to him in a, in a sort of a humorous aside, I said, I'd die for them, Riddick, not you.
2: Yeah.
1: And that leaves him, that seems to leave him with a sense of guilt. I mean, that moment when you when you get the impact, but for a, a second there, you're not sure what's happened. Yes, part of it is, has he stabbed her, potentially to use her as bait or, or something, but part of it is also, has one of the creatures got him?
0: Yeah. It's a really tense moment. As I said, as you've been watching this, anyone could die at the end of this. Yeah. And it, do- it seems wrong that Fry dies. That's right. Like, she was your Ripley-type character, and in the end, she can't get through this. Yeah,
1: but ultimately, her, her journey was one of sacrifice, She refused to make a sacrifice at the beginning. She has spent the rest of the film trying to compensate for that, not wanting to die, but wanting to give everything she has to make sure that as many people as possible get off this rock, as she keeps saying. And in the end, that is what she's able to do. She rescues innocence in the form of Jack. She rescues Faith in the form of the imam. And she manages to rescue potential in the form of Riddick.
0: Riddick. Because what she does does have an impact on him. It nudges him upwards, ever so slightly, from neutral... Ever so slightly, from true neutral to potentially neutral good. We don't need to see him then be potentially neutral good. But it at least leaves us feeling like he has completed an arc. So then they get off the planet and he tells Jack... Sunglasses off now. Not trying to be cool, they're not sunglasses. Goggles off now. But they were figurative sunglasses. That Riddick is dead, he died somewhere on that planet. That the version of him that didn't give a shit is now behind him. And that's it. It's a simple little film about survival where somebody who is living one version of uh, a life based on kind of fantasy DD character archetypes, <laughs> it ends up- Well,
1: he's got form.
0: Ends up kind of being a better person at the end, and that a lot of people who didn't need to die do die at that. The uh, teeth of nature, whiteish grey in Tooth and Claw. Now let's do the colour theory thing.
1: Okay. So this is compared to some of the colour theory that we've gone into over the years since then. This is pretty simplistic.
0: Yes. It was the was it the first time you'd ever really done this with a film?
1: I can't remember if it was the first time. It was the first time I discussed it with you. Mm-hmm. With a film, I probably did a little bit of it when we uh, studied The Matrix at uni. But um, but this would have this was the first time I applied my love of element categorising to film analysis. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, so yellow, okay, which is so, the yellowy-orange, is the first colour scheme we get once they yeah, hit planet. This is,
1: this is all to do with the lighting. So when they arrive on the planet, the, the sun that they are under is a very vivid yellow. There is actually a moment before this, which I, I had not added before, but when they're landing, everything is orange. Carolyn is looking for the horizon. So... The the lighting scheme tends to reflect what they need the most in that moment. So this this sort of very pale yellow light that they're under when they all land and they're all kind of taking stock and is, who's dead and who's alive, what, what's the situation here. This is when they discover that the atmosphere is very thin and everybody's struggling to
0: breathe. They're on half a lung.
1: Yeah, so what they're short of is air and from an from an elemental category, uh, from elementally speaking yellow tends to represent the element of air so that's what light they have that's what they need then once they get these oxygen tubes sorted up for everybody They discover that the next thing that they're short of is water and by this time they have discovered these extra two suns Mm. and one of them is much more of a cold blue light so now everything like a
0: michael mann film
1: exactly so now everything is lit in blue they're heading towards the blue sun to find blue water and Blue being the colour that represents the element of water, mm-hmm. that's what they're looking for.
0: It is of note that they were filming in Australia, and it was the summertime in Australia, which is really, really cold. What? Okay. I don't even understand that Australia can even get really cold, but apparently it does in the summertime. Mm-hmm. And they had to be sprayed with pretend sweat to make it look like they weren't freezing their nips off out there, mm-hmm. which they actually were. Indeed. They had to pretend they were hot, and frankly, they did a really good job. I have never questioned it. Okay, so the third lighting scheme? So
1: then it kind of switches back and forth between a, a sort of a faded out yellow and a faded out blue, and then the next major shift is when they are trying to run, this is when the, the, the lights have gone, the suns have gone down, the eclipse has started, and they are trying to get from crash site to settlement and the, all they have to light their way is green flares so whenever they have light going it's this kind of green
0: xbox green <laughs>
1: yeah it is very vivid green sometimes but at that point the thing that they could really do with is some shelter they need to go to ground and green is the color that represents the element of earth so Eventually, they manage to get underground and the reason that they have to go underground is because it starts pissing it down with rain. There's that water they were desperate for earlier but don't need right now.
0: And then the and bioluminescent bugs come out and go, blue, blue, yes we know. <laughs>
1: yeah, we know, there's water, water everywhere and it's all very muddy. Um, but the, but the, the reason that the rain itself is so damaging at that point is because almost literally all the light they have left now is the molotov cocktail type torches that they've assembled out of paris's what was left of paris's booze collection and the water obviously puts the flames out which loses them their their last remaining source of light and at that point there's a little bit of what you have left in terms of what light they have has become red. And uh, that's the element of fire and fire is what they need now. And then they find the books.
0: This is probably the point where it becomes the most um, primeval, the, the most kind of hiding in a cave because there's saber-toothed tigers outside.
2: Mm,
0: and they, they they need to get the fuck out of And I noticed and added a fifth colour, which is the absence of a particular colour tone. That neon just white light when
1: fluorescent strip light
0: yeah yeah. when Riddick gets in there that could represent just the normal world that they want to go back to and get the fuck away from this weird multicolored caveman planet Mm. Just get us into the skiff and get us the fuck off.
1: Yeah. But as I said to you, that...
0: Then we can just be normal people again, quote unquote.
1: Yeah. That fluorescent light has always been a very uneasy light for me Mm. because it represents...
0: Kitchens late at night.
1: Kitchens late at night and you can't sleep until your shift finishes. Yikes. We've got you and you're not going anywhere, mate. It is the light of depression for Mm. me.
0: And I don't think I've said this often enough. I've worked in my share of kitchens. I've folded my share of sweaters. This is why I always confer that punishment on Jai Courtney. And I've worked in bars. And in all cases, my brain has gone crazy. I can barely focus on that kind of job. Do You know what gave me the ability to stop doing that kind of job? And to just focus on being the best podcaster and editor I possibly could? You folks everyone on Patreon supporting this show, I would never have been able to juggle both long-term. Certainly couldn't have been any kind of writer. So once again, the biggest, warmest from the bottom of my grateful heart, thank you to everyone who stuck with us over the years. And the top tier sponsors get a shout out every week. So a special family-sized thank you to Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alejandra Vargas, Alex Brewington Angus Lee Benjamin Hoffer Brian Novak Cassandra Newman Chris Finnick Christopher Wolfe Kieran Dashler Connor Kennedy Dan Mayer Daniel Salguero Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman David Sheely Finbar Nicole Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing Jameis Enright Jesse Ferguson Joe Crow Joel Robinson John Clawson Joe Gluck Josh Waster, Kat Esman, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Marty Palmeyer, Matthew A. Siebert, Michael Hasco, Robbie Crow, Sarah Montgomery, Timu hellas Hayu, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Skills jungius Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. And the actual, the last shot of the shots of the film, Riddick does this weird little dramatic pull away. He's firing up the skiff, and then he deliberately powers it down. And then the imam just sort of stares in a kind of wait, are we not going? And Jack's like, um, Riddick, turn it back on. And then they, these creatures crawl all over their skiff, just ready to smash it to pieces and get to the tasty treats inside. You can't leave.
2: say goodnight
0: and then blows the engines to Fry them in this pathetic little bit of vengeance for, for Fry's death and potentially a lot of other people uh, that uh, went through there he they could just have skittered away as fast as possible but he risks them all for a little fuck you yeah a little fuck you So we will be back to talk about all the other Riddick materials, not because they're good, but because it's kind of a fascinating series of astute decisions mixed with phenomenally bad ones. So that's the 30-minute animatrix-style Dark Fury, the two video games, that is Escape from Butcher Bay and Assault on Dark Athena. Those are gonna be the next two weeks on Patreon. The attempt to turn this into a sprawling dark space fantasy, The Chronicles of Riddick. That's a main event. And finally, the attempt to bring it back to basics with the movie about a bunch of mercs trapped on an alien planet with hostile life forms, simply entitled Riddick. And this third film, this conclusion to the series so far will be another Patreon bonus feed exclusive. Until then, I've been Alex Shaw.
1: I've been Sharon Shaw.
0: And we we can't can't leave without without saying good night.
2: any sisters there ah! <laughs>